Hello. I can literally see your whole chest moving up and down. Thank you. <laughs> You've got to sing from the diaphragm. Baby, your diaphragm is not on your chest. Where is it? <laughs> it's up above near your stomach. Exactly. That's no, what right here. Yeah. Your and diaphragm. it's best. <sighs> you ever do that? Okay, Diego. <laughs> yeah, the way Diego breathes is how you should breathe. It's underneath your chest. I feel like we need to show a diagram. Uh, a diaphragm gram? A diagram? Wait, what? A diagram <laughs> of your diaphragm. Your face right now <laughs> is really perplexed and confused. That's because I am perplexed and confused. <laughs> I thought I had like confused a body part and I was saying like... I don't know, clitoris or something on this podcast. <laughs> and because that's how shocked your face looked. I was like, what do you mean, uh, girl? I can't find the word. So, <sighs> what's up? This is off the page. And I am Mary Beth. And I am Paige. How's it going? Um, It's good. How's it going for you? It's going pretty well. So. I do feel the need to... Uh-oh. What'd you do? I didn't do anything mm. to at you Why? really quickly. Because ever since Paige and I have been together, she has taken no small amount of pleasure in ridiculing me for my looks. What?! My fashion. Thank you. Be fa- say fashion. Don't say looks. I you can't fix your face. That's Baby. what looks are. No, my looks. My no, fashion. what the people are gonna think is you're saying I've ridiculed your body. No, 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 no. My looks. My yeah. Your fashion. Your looks. My looks with a Z and an E W. Luke. Okay. That's how the kids spell it. Oh. L E W K Z. Okay. So. And this morning we went to Costco. Oh my gosh. And I want to say that Paige basically stole my look, my Luke. I didn't though. I told you. Bar for bar, verse for verse. (laughs) I told you what I was going to wear before you wore yours. Baby. But, you know... She went thrifting yesterday with Amy and... I found a sweater. That she said, quote, unquote, I bought this because it looked like something that you would wear. And that way I can have my own and I won't have to steal yours anymore. I thought I was being helpful. And here you are just like lambasting me for it. Lambasting. That's extreme. (laughs) Is it though? It is. But anyway... I just felt the need to call it like I see it and Mm -mm. say that, you know, if my fashion is not smashing, (sighs) then why is everyone trying to steal my look? I have nothing to say to you. Well, interesting. What's really in right now is the, the boyfriend look. 
yeah. which is like like basically your outfits. So what you're saying is I'm finally fashionable. Yes. After years. So I'm just taking a page from all the fashion magazines. So you're saying that I'm I haven't been no, fashionable. No, I didn't. Well, no. Oh, okay. No, and I do okay. have to say some of your color pattern patterning mm. is a bit much. Okay. Okay. And I would never, ever be got dead wearing those giraffe shorts that you own. And well, listeners, I just, I can't even describe these pants I to you. I have gotten many compliments <laughs> on them, so. They're very loud. Yes. It's like a literal jungle. Her pants and the way that they're loud. Get it? Like, no? Okay. Well, anyway. So, how's it going? She has the cockiest... <laughs> face on right now and i don't feel like looking at it it's in this season <laughs> anyway <laughs> i was wearing my cut off pant like my jeans that have holes in them because that's also cool uh-huh and it- i wore that sweater <laughs> <sighs> you know i don't even care about fashion most of the time mm-hmm I like to look nice at work and pro- mm-hmm. like professional. You do always look very nice at work. But ugh, my my casual style leaves a lot to be desired. Her kids tell her she looks like a Disney princess. Yes, that is the vibe. That's the vibe I also try to go for on a regular enough basis. And I guess that I would say... That is not your vibe. <laughs> my vibe is more of the street rat. like. <laughs> As Milo is to the trash can, yeah. Mary Beth's fashion is to the street rat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. Wow. Well, this is going to take a turn because the book I read was really dramatic and about a Spanish about the Spanish Civil War. So, well, so sorry. Um, I am not dramatic at all. Apparently <laughs> not. Yeah. So we're going to take a little turn to the book. Okay. Okay, are you ready? Are you signaling? Have you turned on your Blinka? My Blinka is yeah, the Blinka. one. Get in Blinka. the car. Use your Blinka. We're switching lanes. <laughs> We're coming over. So I read a book uh, called The Fountains of Silence by Rita Sepetis, I think is how you say her name. I have never read anything. This woman has written like, I don't know, a lot of books. Hold on, let me look it up seven she's written seven books and she's quite well known in the historical ya book community in the annals oh god that word she's a great writer mm-hmm. uh, i basically i picked this up at the library because i had heard a lot of good things about her writing and it just happened to be at the one closest the branch closest to us and i knew i wanted to read something by her so i just randomly picked it up one day not knowing really anything about it I'm going to give you guys the synopsis now so that we can really dive in and we can talk about the characters and stuff. Okay. Madrid, 1957. Under the dictatorship of General Francisco Franco, Spain is living in silence. Meanwhile, tourists and foreign businessmen flood into the country under the welcoming promise of sunshine and wine. Among them is 18-year-old Daniel Matheson, the son of an oil tycoon who arrives in Madrid with his parents, hoping to connect with the country of his mother's birth through the lens of his camera. Photography and fate introduce him to Anna, whose family's interweaving obstacles reveal the lingering grasp of the Spanish Civil War, as well as chilling definitions of fortune and fear. Daniel's photographs leave him with uncomfortable questions amidst the shadows of danger, 
He is backed into a corner of a difficult decisions to protect those he loves. Lives and hearts co- loves yeah, lives and hearts collide, revealing an incredibly dark side to the sunny Spanish city. I really like this book because like most really good historical fiction novels, there are a lot of bits of truth throughout. So in between spliced in between certain chapters are actual vintage media reports and oral history retellings from the National Archives. And there's pictures and really well-developed characters. This book is huge. It's like 600 pages. It was like 177 chapters or something insane like that. I don't have it in front of me anymore, so I couldn't really tell you Mm -hmm. or just slam the book down on the table so that you could hear the chonky heft. I couldn't flip through it like like you used to. The good Um, old days. (laughs) I really liked this book. Two, two, two things i like her her writing style Mm -hmm. it's very descriptive but it's also very her prose is very sparse in a way so like each of the chapters yes there's like 177 of them but they're very very fast and the book starts to pick up a pace she really does a good job of introducing the characters and then making you feel for them almost immediately i was left really captivated and i really kept wanting to read and listen i picked up only one book reading this book like in between sometimes i'll read you know i read i tend to read like three or four books at a time um and i'm notorious for like stopping in the middle of something but i had to pick this book back up because i really wanted to know what happened and it really does cut it does a couple time jumps but it does a great job of painting a really vivid portrait of what i'm sure life was like in spain in madrid specifically during this time i think it was interesting that she chose the year 1957 because it's far enough away. So the Spanish Civil War, I guess, let me give you. 1957. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let me give you a little brief overview. Okay. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, the Spanish Civil War spanned from the years 1936 through 1939. It was a military revolt against the Republican government of Spain, supported by the conservative elements within the country. When an initial military coup failed to win control of the entire country, a bloody civil war ensued. Fought with great ferocity on both sides, the nationalists, as the rebels were called, received aid from fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. The Republicans received aid from Soviet Union as well as the international brigades, composed of volunteers from Europe and the United States. Now, the United States post-Civil War did a lot to, as a country, we as citizens probably didn't understand how uh, dangerous Franco, Francisco Franco was uh, during his reign because basically he came into power during this coup and they fought and he retained power until well into the like 1960s. Mm. I think he died in, let me see. Oh gosh, I should have looked that up. I'm sorry because it's part of the book too. The book spans with these character ter- characters until after his death. He lived from 1907 to 1975. So he died in 1975, and that is the year the book ends. Okay. But basically, it follows Daniel Matheson on his like summer trip to Spain. His dad is an oil tycoon, like the right, and he's trying to. So the U.S. government allowed u.s citizens to kind of like do trade with spain Mm -hmm. but they really didn't want to support franco because they were they knew that he was probably up to some fishy business and there were stories that came out in the summer of 57 that the church was also the catholic church was also involved in some really unfortunate dealings and basically 
I'm going to spoil a lot of this book because it's really hard to talk about the important parts without right. really giving some major spoilers. So, so we're set. Hold on. We're, let's head some context. So this is post World War Two. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. So, okay. So the Spanish Civil War happens during World Dur- War- no before World War Two before because okay. World War Two happens in the 40s. So let me get right. You- so World War Two starts in September of 1939 right. when the Spanish Civil War ends. Okay. So it's like the Spanish Civil War happens. Right. World War II happens. Right. And it goes until 45. Right. 1945. Right. So 1957, Daniel has lived part of his life through the end of the World War II. His mom is Spanish. Mm-hmm. So she actually met his dad. Oh, thank you. Speaking of Civil War. <laughs> so uh, Daniel's mom met his dad in some sort of I can't remember how it happened because he wasn't in Spain when they met okay and Daniel had never been to Spain so his parents his mom uh, basically has a miscarriage and a really hard time recovering physically and so the dad decides oh you know what I need to go do business in Spain because I'm an oil tycoon and I have money to spend and I'm actually in the market for opening up some oil situations in Spain too and so the dad's American yes okay through and through in texas he's um, yeah yes he's a texas man um and so he has all of this money and he wants to make relations with spain so basically his dad sets up this situation in spain where he meets franco and daniel and they have their business dealings and his parents because of this miscarriage loss daniel is about to go away to college and so his parents decide to adopt a baby while they're in spain and essentially Ruda, Ruda, the author of this book, heard about this story on NPR of there was a huge issue. Wait, is this a true story? No. No, it's historical fiction. So it's weaving a lot of actual things that happened in the real life. Okay, but I'm confused. Daniel, the Mathesons are not real. Okay. So anytime I'm referencing them, all of it, these characters are all made up, but their stories probably happened to people. Right. Because... All of these are situations right. that actually happened. Right. Oil tycoons did yeah. go Thank to you. Spain. Thank you. <laughs> and there's oil in Texas. I had no idea. No, I didn't mean it like that. Okay, so <laughs> Diego's out there. Um, okay, so if Fr- Francisco Franco Franco he is like the leader of spain i'm not this time okay Okay, so i'm not super familiar with spanish i was not i was not either okay so like pretty much i can't give you more than what i'm telling you because that is so what i've researched he is uh, he is a fascist yes okay yes he's a bad guy he's bad okay so the fact that yes we do not approve of fascists on this program (laughs) daniel's pretty upset his dad is like doing dealings with franco okay and he is also upset because he doesn't want his dad to be tied to anything. And he's taking these pictures of Spain and he's finding a lot of really weird cases of people going missing. Right. Of babies going missing. Right. Of So basically, Daniel is they're staying in this really, really fancy hotel. It's one of the only the white lotus. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, it's actually a Hilton. It's oh. it was actually one of the first hotels open to the public after the Spanish civil war and after world war two. Huh? So because it was a fascist regime during world war two, nobody really went to Spain. A lot of fighting was happening in their own country. Cause it's, you know, 
had just happened and then world war ii happens right and their people are poor and their country is not surviving very well because you know they live under a fascist regime regime um and nobody really cares about people like eating or anything like that it is no concern it is no concern whether you have food for whatever okay so the matheson's going in the 50s they have just really reopened spain to public people to come and public journalists to come and people like that people of the press okay so the matheson's are over there daniel is their son he's about college age yes so the mom gets pregnant but loses the baby correct so they are in spain because the mom was upset about losing the baby got it okay and this spurred his dad on to you know really going over there and bringing his whole family instead of just himself got it and they go for the entire summer and they travel the parents tend to travel around daniel actually stays in madrid pretty much the whole time because he falls in love with someone at the hotel Ooh. so he falls in love with anna this woman who works mm-hmm. as his maid at the hotel mm. and anna's cousin puri is working at as like a church employee mm-hmm. at this church run orphanage orphanage. Okay. Okay. So she takes care of all the little babies and loves on them. And it's very sweet. Mm-hmm. There's so many moving parts because there's lots of characters in the story. So I'm just going to stick with these it's three characters. 600 pages. I, it's a I, lot. Yeah. No. <laughs> but so I'm going to tell you why the author wrote this because okay. I found that to be the most gripping part of this whole story. Okay. Gotcha. And I needed to give you all of that background. So you understood that, Spain is pretty much in squalor and they're opening up to the world if so that they can gain more money. Okay, they get a it. lot of money from tourism and the Hilton yeah. opens and yeah. they're able to generate a lot of press and things like that. I am happy to blame the Hilton. <laughs> I'm happy to do that. Um, I'm a Marriott ho. I'm just kidding. Uh, I don't. Um, so I'm going to tell you. So I watched, I read this book. And I listened to it. I listened to most of it, actually. And the uh, woman who narrates the audiobook is great. Um, it's a lot of, you know, Spanish. And I always mm-hmm. like to know how you're actually pronouncing things. Because oh, that can be really challenging for yes. me. And so I stumbled upon a series of videos on YouTube of this author talking. She is, like, really well known for her stories about World War II, mainly. Mm-hmm. And she does a really, really good job of researching. Mm-hmm. So basically she heard, had heard uh, on NPR. I don't know if you guys can hear this. Diego's in the backyard just like really making a racket. I think our neighbor is out and he has this like little hole in the fence that he can go and, and yell at them. Get off my lawn. They're not on your lawn, Diego. Get off your lawn. Truly. Or it's the little kids next door and they're yeah. jumping on the trampoline because uh, heaven forbid children enjoy anything. I know. So he's such a grumpy old man. He really is. He's so handsome though. Very handsome. handsome. But very grumpy. (laughs) Very grumpy. So she was listening to NPR one day and she heard this article. So I'm going to read part of this article to you. How Spanish women were allegedly targeted in stolen baby cases for decades. Something like this happened in the U.S. Yes. And probably continues to happen. For almost 40 years, Pilar Navarro thought her daughter was dead. She gave birth at a private Catholic hospital in Madrid in 1973, anxious to start her family. But less than 24 hours after delivery, Navarro's nurse, who was a nun, told her and her husband that the baby had died from respiratory issues. Oh, my God. The young couple could not see the baby's body because the hospital had already baptized and buried the child, according to the nurse. 
We never thought a doctor or a nun would do something like that, says Navarro, who is now 68. We just couldn't understand it. It wasn't until 2011 when thousands of stories about Spain's quote unquote stolen babies came to light that she thought perhaps her daughter might have been stolen too. The stories she read were disconcertingly similar to her own. So between the 1930s and the 1980s, lawyers and advocates say newborns were separated in hospitals from their mothers without consent and placed into a sprawling clandestine adoption network. Many of children wound up in families loyal to the regime of the late dictator General Francisco Franco. Some experts believe that it started as a tactic used by Franco to wipe out communist tendencies from women who fought for the Republic against his fascist military uprising in 36 to 39 Spanish Civil War. It later turned out into a money. It later turned into a money making business. Prosecutors and academics say that lasted well after the country's transition to democracy following Franco's death in 75. So. The author basically heard this story on NPR, and I'm li- I literally just quoted it, so we're going to have to cite it for the listeners. Right. And crafted this entire story about Daniel and his family and Anna and her family and all of the myriad people in and around their story to kind of shed light on this issue. So her her big thing is she tends to find stories that are lesser known but around bigger issues, right? So right. most of her stories were about like Holocaust survivors, but specifically ones in like Romania or specifically parts of her her family history is Hungarian, I believe. And so some of her other books are about the, those surviving stories of her family. So her first couple of stories were based off of her family's history actually. And so she did a lot of research. This story, she actually went to Spain and she studied a lot of the history of Madrid specifically so that she could really paint this vivid picture. And she really does such a good job. I really felt like I was actually there in Spain. I mean, granted, I've never been to Madrid, so I don't actually know what it's like. I know. I'd love to go to Madrid. I would love to. Leah's been to Spain, so I bet I could get her to read it and she could tell us whether or not it's, you know, somewhat similar. But... I found the story totally gripping. So basically, Daniel and his parents go there. He's a photographer. He really wants to go to journalism school. He's gotten the great opportunity to win this major award, but he basically has to kind of compile his an extra part of his portfolio. And so he's taking all these pictures in Spain and he comes across the orphanage and he comes across this nun carrying what looks like a baby, but it looks dead. And so he takes this really suspicious photo. Franco's like private police basically escort him to jail and like confiscate his camera and he gets in a little bit of trouble. And this is literally like the second day he's in Spain doing it right. Causing drama. Um, And so he gets tangled up and kind of weaves Anna into this little bit of a mess. Like, please lie for me. So my parents aren't concerned. Like he really, he didn't get in that much trouble. Like he really would be okay. He's a white man. He's a white man. He'll he'll be fine. He, he's not from there. So he's going to be fine. Yeah. And so they kind of hang out with like the diplomat side of Spain, like all of the American diplomats that are there. He makes friends with a couple people. He makes friends with a journalist. He makes friends with the man who takes the photos and he makes friends with Anna and she kind of shows him this other side of Spain. So her parents were actually rebels and they died. They were actually both teachers and her and her siblings now live kind of underground and doing really menial tasks. So she's a maid, Mm -hmm. for example, her sister is a jewelry um, seamstress, so mm-hmm. she sews matador costumes. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. And she's very good at it. And they have this little baby, her and her sister, her older sister and his, the spouse. I can't uh. remember his name. And they live in constant fear that they're going to be found out. Like people will know who their parents were and they will be killed too mm. because Franco's still in power and it's seen as uncouth to keep people like that around. So they kind of live in the slums. Anyway, Daniel gets kind of falls in love with her and not kind of he really does fall in love with her right and they spend a lot of time together and he and she really shows him another side of spain like she's like you live in this opulent hotel here but this is really how people in spain are living under this regime and can you basically tell a story through your pictures Mm -hmm. of what's really going on and then it jumps ahead a lot of things happen a lot of really sad things happen basically they get ready to leave spain Daniel Mathis, the Mathesons, and they adopt a baby oh, Lord. from the orphanage. Whose so, baby they snatch? That's the funny thing. Whose baby indeed? So her sister, Anna's sister, was pregnant. Oh, no. And I told you she had a little baby, right? Uh-huh. Well, she was actually a twin. <gasps> so she, they come to find out at the very end of the book that his younger, his now younger sister, who he's helped raise, his mom has now passed on. It's the 70s. Franco dies. So they decide to take the baby, who was the baby, who is now 18, back to Spain. So Daniel and his younger sister go to Spain and meet up with Anna again and some old friends. And essentially, Julia, Anna's older sister, realizes that the baby is definitely <gasps> related. And so they all kind of stay involved And the book ends with them trying to decide this really hard thing of, do we tell her? She's obviously going to know. And Anna and him want to be together now forever. They waited 20 years, like basically 20 years to be together. So, and their story ends in a really tragic way in 1957. And I'm glad that she picks the story back up and you kind of get to see them again because that would be tragic if you... Because I really fell in love with them. I liked them a lot. Aww. And I really liked this book. I thought it was really, really well handled. It was like... What an interesting and important story, though. Yeah. And I like that she picked people tangential tangential to the central story of... Like, it would have been interesting to read Anna's story, but you get so much of her story through Daniel's eyes. Mm. And it's actually more interesting because he's such an outsider that you so, get a lot more exposition and it's like a natural way to tell a story. So basically, he... Does he do investigative work and prove that the regime and the church are involved in... No, he doesn't get that far. Okay. Um, He knows something is fishy in Spain. Like, he definitely walks away a journalist. Mm -hmm. He does end up going and being a photojournalist for National Mm -hmm. Geographic. And he goes all these places and he, like, works for a bunch of different places. But he knows something was wrong. And he, he knows, like, that maybe something... Because really the person who ends up finding out all of this is Anna's cousin, Puri, who works for the orphanage. She sees an event happen of a woman give birth to a baby, a totally healthy baby. And they lie to the parents and she's kind of complicit in this act. And she becomes racked with guilt because she's like, this baby is obviously not dead. Like, I can't find the baby, but I know she's not dead. She had healthy lungs. She looked, you know, very normal. Um, The mom recovered. The dad was devastated. I mean, both the parents were absolutely devastated when they found out that the baby died. And really, all the people around Anna's story kind of figure it out because the younger brother of Anna and his buddy, they are graveyard workers and they bury coffins for the church. 
and they come to find out like they're burying empty coffins for babies that are not actually dead. That is so disturbing. And then they, this sad turn of events happens and he ends up in jail and another person ends up dead. And so no, they never actually come. You as a reader know the story, but nobody ever puts all of the pieces together in order to like unmask this kind of scandal. Which it doesn't come to light really until the 20, 2011s, like when NPR broke this story. Like that's, Shit. and they're still trying cases from this in 2022. I wonder how a few, well, a few things. I wonder how much DNA is going to factor into. I think that's part of yeah what they, that's like how they figured some of some it out. Some of it out. I mean, that, I mean, you're going to have to have some of that to unravel stuff that that's old because obviously if you're a newborn baby you can't be like no that's not my biological parents but you know there's been some of that obviously not on such a grand scale but that's happened in the u.s oh yeah bad actors uh taking stealing impoverished women's Mm -hmm. babies which i can't even imagine like I, I mean, I don't need a story to give me that empathy. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's just, well, and then on the flip side, uh, there's a podcast called The Opportunist, which is very mm. good. Uh, and they do episodes. I can't remember if they're episodes or seasons, but just on like scam artists. And there was this lady who her scam was like, an adoption agency where she'd be like, here's this baby and this mom and, you know, we're going to give me this money and, you know, she's about to give birth and... Oh, and you can have the baby. Yeah, and the baby would either die or the mom would back out and she would just be scamming them out of thousands and thousands of dollars, which the monetary loss... Is obviously one thing, but you have these people who think that they're about to become parents and, you know, but, you know, obviously that's one thing, but the idea that a dictator could be like, I'm going to take these babies away from people who I don't agree with and give them to, to people who I do agree with is is definitely super disgusting yeah i mean it's it's that and this is touched upon in the story like to pay for the crimes of your family members and i think that is something that people reflect on post-war any in any war right right to pay for the sins of your father when you didn't do it and and that can be like flipped both ways right absolutely so like you know rep reparations should be made do you need to in wartime pay for your for your parents sins and that is really what you had to do in madrid in the 50s post the spanish civil war and world war ii is there were swaths of families just living in absolute destitution because they couldn't rise in any way above their station and i'm putting that in quotes or make a livable wage because they didn't want to be found out to be yeah. related to any of those people. Yeah. And that's t- terrifyingly tragic. Imagine all of the things, you know. Yeah, I don't I di- I don't think I realized when I think about European history, 
obviously a few things come to mind. Uh, you think a lot about, or at least I think a lot about, you know, with regard to civil wars, uh, you know, the French, and then I think about ours. Yeah. Well, yeah, ours, but specifically in the context of Europe. And I think about like USSR. And then I think about, you know, the world wars. And I think about unrest in, in Germany and the split post, post World War Two, and, and what that did in Germany. And even then I'm not super duper educated because here in America we're right. very ethnocentric and love that know, for us. We know American history. Yeah, which is why we both of, and, we both and were like, I don't know anything about the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, but I did not realize at all that there A was a Spanish Civil War within this past well, not this century, but mm. the previous century. And that it was that and that it was ruled by a a fascist government. I mean, Mm. when I think about fascist European governments, I think about obviously... Right, the big ones. Yeah, and uh, Italy uh, with Mussolini. So that's that's super... Interesting. And she does tend to pick those types of stories on purpose, like because we don't know very much about them. Yeah. She thinks, you know, giving you some sort of like... The great thing about historical fiction is it becomes a great entrance into history and a lot of times you can use them and i think she's known well enough as an adult or a ya author mm-hmm. so i know a lot of teachers use her books to teach history mm-hmm. and i love those types of stories i mean i read a lot of them growing up i really loved history but history books can be very dull and boring right and it's so much <laughs> and it's so much easier to get kids interested in a historical event or a series of historical events and base it around the same character. So you right. can really put yourself as the character, right? And she is very good at that transformative type of literature where you really feel like you're the characters. And it's sad because I don't... I tried to make a book flight for this mm-hmm. because I didn't know very much. I wanted to read more like mm-hmm. it about the Spanish Civil War. I can't find any book pairings. Yeah. I, I can't find anything. It's very interesting. And I... I mean, granted, I did not ask my local librarians for help. Right. I know they'd be very helpful. I basically just let Google tell me what to do. Right. So my AI generated answers are not giving me anything, <laughs> but I can't even find like an actual, you know, not fi- fictional care, you know, story. I wanted a nonfiction book to pair with this. Right. I didn't even find that. Yeah, that's funny because... You know, now that I'm thinking about it, what do we learn about here in the U.S., at least for me? And I'm sure it's probably pretty similar. Yeah, we Post- would always get like super close to World War II, but never to World War II. Well, for me, post-World War II, our history. Okay, so what happened after World War II? Okay, uh, so, you know, you have the U.S. and all of that. And then our like our- the 60s in Vietnam. Yeah, our our global our our global dealings were Cuba, uh, you know, Korean, uh, the Korean War, lots of stuff happening in the Middle East, right? Russia, right? The Berlin Wall, right? Uh, 
Yeah, it gets a, a little muddy. Our buddies in uh, the UK, our BFFs, mm. and we don't always see eye to eye with China. And yeah, yeah, we had that fiasco in Vietnam. And there is a whole gigantic swath of yeah, missing big, countries great, in there. Because there's the apartheid in South Africa. Like, there's so much stuff that I've used historical fiction to give me more right. information. So, for example, another great, if you really like historical fiction, I highly, highly recommend Elizabeth Wien, W E I. And she wrote Codename Verity, which is by far one of my favorite books in general. It's about World War II fighter pilots and spies. And it got me on a huge tangent about the like secret Churchill set up all of these spy things. And I spent maybe two Winston. Yeah, maybe two years learning about his like spy ring, especially of women and the resistance in France and in England. And that's all readily available to you. But uh, she also wrote. Um, she really she's a pilot herself and she wrote about South Africa and in Black Dove read something oh my gosh I'm gonna have to look that up that's another great if you like historical fiction you should read more of her because she's really good and she touches on pieces of history that I didn't know anything about either and that is so interesting like I, I don't know from my perspective I'm like how do these people research this because I can't even find information about it you know how yeah. do they craft these really well-played stories when I, I like they get out there, they go, they, they go very impressive. To, they go and talk to people. They, yeah. And she does like, she really went and spoke to people in Spain, spoke to people who were on both sides of the war mm-hmm. and family members on both sides of the war. And she really tried to kind of like make an amalgam story of a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. And so you, as the reader, follow Daniel because he also is just as naive as you are. He doesn't Mm -hmm. know anything. And Mm -hmm. so you kind of find everything out with him and that Mm -hmm. makes for a really interesting read. So I think it's fascinating that she chose him. Yeah. Because I think it's easy, especially for people in our generation to, to forget and think, Oh, all of that stuff. Right. It's distant history. I, yes, I just had this conversation with my kids actually my students because what were we talking about well we've talked about 9-11 and I've you know I said I I lived through that in the sense that like I was alive when that happened which is crazy to think about and it was like the you know 20th anniversary Mm -hmm. and 20th 20 whatever it was a major (laughs) whatever wait 20th no it was the 20th yeah (laughs) it's like oh my gosh and I was in fifth grade when it happened so the fact Mm -hmm. that I teach fifth grade Mm -hmm. that's like always really awe-inspiring to them Mm -hmm. and then we were talking to about oh my gosh what were we talking about well in ela we've been talking about poetry and so i was trying to put into context where emily dickinson was and then we also talked about veterans day and we were talking about the timeline of world war one and two and i said you know the greatest tragedy of some people was there they lived as children through world war one and then had to go fight in World War II. Ugh, I can't. The, and the and I trauma. said, and just so you know, we still have people alive who fought in World War II alive now and they're in their hundreds. So yeah. I want you to think about the fact that that is not far removed from where we are right now. 
it's not like my, that's what's crazy my parents were alive and going to school when schools were desegregated in the south that's insane yeah that's absolutely insane to think about yeah and so when we like to talk about at least here in america oh we've rounded a corner we're you know completely fine we've closed we've closed the cover on that that chapter it's like absolutely not like if you have people alive who are still trying to process that grief and you're it's like no we're not going to talk about this it's like no dude like yeah we haven't we haven't even begun to to deal with any of this stuff but i guess all of that to say that it's not it's obviously not a uniquely american thing well, and that, and they talk about that in this book. She talks about the idea of Spain opening up again after their civil war and after World War II and basically silencing all of the voices of the war. And they were very, very adamant, like the dictatorship was very adamant. You do not talk about it. Interesting. And they wanted to eradicate it from their history. And so there's also a lot of stories that I'm sure weren't even told. Yeah. Um, and in that that idea of creating a society that ignores its past it's doomed to repeat it not only to repeat it but also doomed to live in like a shrouded secrecy a hundred percent where you cannot be your full self like you cannot be a fully actual realized person absolutely you are living with extreme trauma that is just pushed down upon at every turn and she paints that with the character of anna and her family Mm. to be silenced like that for so long and be so scared of the retribution of their parents and of the part that they played, you know, their parents are dead and they died because of what Mm -hmm. they did. And yet these people can't live in freedom at all. That is such a great point. And I I think think that, I think that was one of the main reasons she wrote the story too. Wasn't just for the baby part, but it was truly to, to paint a picture of when you silence the voices of history, guess what? They'll still, they will rise up anyway. You oh, will find 100%. out. You will find out in really unforeseen ways, and you will also find out in a way where it stunts emotionally the entire populace. Well, we're dealing with that here in right. America with all of this bullshit about like what can be taught in schools and like yes. wanting to censor the very graphic truth of things that happened. You know, it's just yeah. you know it's it's so interesting because it's like. We can't even have a conversation about like what happened during slavery. Okay. Well, that was, you know, over 200 years ago. It was, right. it was awful. It was deplorable. It was gruesome. We can't have a, we can't have, no one is alive from then. And we, we still can't have an open and honest conversation. We want to pull punches. We want to, to like try and soften the discussion around that. And it's like, Mm. no, we need to rip that bandaid off. And then maybe we can start having more open and honest conversations about what happened, you know, in our parents' generation, Mm. which in many cases was just as disgusting as disgusting with people getting ripped out of their homes and, and, and mobs lynching them in the streets. Like, these are the things that are a real part of American history that 
we need to have discussions about. They don't need to be swept under the rug. In fact, they shouldn't be. No, they shouldn't. They're disgusting. They're appalling. They're shocking. But you know what? We're not going to get anywhere if we don't look at dead on and say that was wrong and that's mm-hmm. not who we we should be and we need to we need to we need to try and acknowledge mm-hmm. and and say exact call a spade a spade right because we've been for hundreds of years trying to have an argument about maybe slavery wasn't that bad here in America and it's like I don't think that's the question that we should be asking (laughs) no it's not it's not you know guys come on like that it you you can't (laughs) if that's the question we're starting with you know it's not going to be a productive conversation right so what are you going to do yeah but it is it is interesting I guess to to see that there are obviously not the same but other things in other countries that have happened that have been suppressed and that it's like we shouldn't talk about this that have been wrong and it's like let's just move on and not talk about this yeah yeah I I do I do also think it's interesting with this book specifically because the right the author is not is she's she's from here right she's American oh she's American and there was a lot of conversation around what right do we as readers mm-hmm. and as authors have to history other than our own like if you're not writing about the country of your mm. origin and, you know, and maybe that is something that she thought about while writing because she's written so much of her own family history in her books that she's like, what what right do I have to tell this story? Because it's not mine to tell, really. But I think that's an interesting discussion, too, to have to like, I think it's important still to tell it because nobody else is telling it, you know? Yeah. And I don't know. Again, we're white women. We've said this many, many times. times. <laughs> but... I think that anytime you're looking at telling a story as someone who is white, mm-hmm. as a right, you're already setting yes. yourself up on a bad playing field, unless it is your story. Right. You know, I have a, I have a story um, that is mine. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, my, and as a member of, the LGBTQ plus community, I have a story that is also mine. Right. But I, I'm not entitled to people of colors story. Right. So I, I think that's why she positions Daniel as the character that you follow through most of the story, because he is a white dude from Texas. I mean, granted his mom is Spanish. So I would say you're not like we as white people are not entitled to no. tell these stories. No. I will say that there's a difference between saying I deserve to tell a story mm. and saying 
I would am happy to lend a voice. Right. And I think and there's a way to go about that. It's the way you approach people. It's the dignity right. you show a story. It's the right. way you shine a spotlight and the way you say, I'm up. I am uplifting this, this story in the voice of this as opposed to making this about right. me. And that can be a fine line and you have to defer to those around you. And right. People, and, and I, yeah, yeah. So. I think the fact that she went and interviewed people directly right. related to these stories. Right. Makes it a little bit more palatable. Right. And she did, she was so intentional. I mean, even on her website, like you can go on and get the discussion guide that right. she helps create. And in it, she's kind of like, putting herself on blasted certain slides like right. I'm, I've read through it and I have you know a couple up because I thought they were good right um entrees think, into that type of discussion I think it's also important like are you it's also I think she was telling it for the right reasons is what I'm saying I think she had the best of intentions right I think it's also interesting and like you said it's like is there a topic being discussed and there are uh, you know, 20 black or people of color, uh, BIPOC people talking about it. And then there's one white voice that's like, I'm screaming over you and I'm talking right. over you and I am cranking my volume to right. 11 and making my voice heard and the one that you should be listening to. Or is it like, I don't think many other people are writing about this. Or is it like, how can I use my voice to amplify these yes. other voices? It's like talking over someone else as opposed to amplifying, you know, these other voices. And that can be a very tricky line to walk. But I don't, I don't think it means that you as a, a white person can never yeah. use your, your, your skills to help amplify right. other voices. I think you just need to be cognizant that you don't own and you aren't entitled to Correct. people of color stories. I And I don't think she plays it like right. that at all. Right. I, I think she does a good job of explaining to readers, especially because they're younger audiences, you know, mainly reading these books. It's YA. Right. And that's where it's shelved. Right. And granted, yeah, she has a lot of adult readers like myself, but I think more so... I think she mainly writes these books as almost like books you read in a school to right. get a classroom discussion going. Right. And I think the fact that she dwells more on that, that theme of the pact of forgetting, which is what that was called, that, that um, she writes a really long author's note about like people she interviewed and mm -hmm. the things she did to research and things like that. And um, just going back to that idea of like when you silence an entire generation of people about a specific historical event, what is left to talk right, about. Right. Um, and she writes in her author's note, some historians have described the pact of forgetting as necessary for a smooth and peaceful transition. Others question the long-term effects of silence on historical memory, identity construction and human dignity. Scholars, question whether the absence of a common historical narrative creates painful obstructions of justice and trust. And then she also talks about like, she asks, you know, do we have, and then she goes on to talk about what we just talked about, that right of history that's not our own, but how can we tell that story respectfully and how can we tell this story in general? Because I think it's valid to say like, there's not a lot out there about this specific thing. And I think it's actually really important that we talk about it 
and she on her you know in this like presentation she has pictures of when she was in spain and all of the conversations she had with people they've right. recorded some of them and you can watch them and what's her her overall point is it just about it's like, just about telling the story like yeah it is truly she said you know overall we don't talk about it in american history at mm-hmm. all and i think it's important that we talk about it because i think it affects people just because of the migratory patterns of people and moving and right and also that's an entire you know if they're not talking about it we should right so that it's not forgotten forever right and not saying take that story and make it your own it's take that story and amplify it and and make sure that you know we're we're all affected by silence like on the national stage i think part of the reason there's not a lot of stories written about it is because there was an entire generation of people told not to talk about it interesting i mean yeah that is interesting because it's like i don't want to put words in her mouth that's me saying that yeah because it's like maybe this is something that they want to forget so it's also like you have to be respectful right but But people willingly talk to her about it so i do think i do think there's something i think it it comes back to and it's hard to measure intent but it's like are you trying to give people dignity and be dignified and not be vulturistic? Yes. And I don't, uh, I don't know. And And I don't get that impression. I don't get that impression from her either. Again, I'm coming at this from like, I'm very, as far as I know, very British in my background. So I don't know. I think for me, at least it's about are you being respectful and and trying to bring honor yeah to 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 others yeah and i don't and granted i like read a lot about this author because i thought i had a lot of interesting thoughts after reading it Mm -hmm. and so like from what i could tell no one is lambasting her for telling the story so like even spanish people like i could not find anything online of people saying that's a misrepresentation of my country or you know like because this is reminding me a lot about the discourse that's going on around true crime right now mm. you know what i'm talking about i think vaguely i so, mean i'm not a part of that community like you are but so there's a lot of discussion going on right now about like true crime and saying that a lot of the fascination has been not respectful toward the vic- the mm. victims and mm. has presented the victim stories in a way that is extremely like voyeuristic right and this has particularly been true of crimes uh, against women i would think well it's been a particular criticism of the Jeffrey Dahmer, mm. um, which I haven't watched, so mm. I, I don't really know. But apparently, a lot of the victims' families were not very happy about that. I one. saw that, yeah. And the one, there's something about Pam. Yes, I saw that one too, where one, it glorifies her more than it glorifies. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't, I don't know that I've, I've, I, and again, I haven't watched either of those, so I can't speak to them directly so i think i think it's hard to be compassionate as a creator of artistic work sometimes when you so desperately 
want your story to be subversive because like most of those follow the murderer, not the victim. And that's true. And I think it's hard. It's really hard to be compassionate when you are trying to tell a story from a different point of view that you think is progressive, but it's actually not. It's victim blaming. Well, sometimes I think it does get into victim blaming, but I think it's also like you don't want to dehumanize, like you said, the victim and you don't want to turn it into a spectacle. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm a big, I am a big consumer of true crime. Yeah. And yes, you are. I, I don't know. I, I feel like I could probably talk about this all day, but I, I guess my point is I can see how, the presentation of a story could definitely be such that it would be disrespectful Mm. toward a victim. I don't think that for me personally, most of the true crime that I consume would be in that category. However, I'm not really watching these dramatized versions of these. I think these. That, that was, that's something too with that, um, oh my gosh, Tommy Lee Jones and Pamela Anderson. Yeah, that's what I, but again, I don't, but then it's like, one of the arguments also is like, you're not, you're devoting so much time, like you said, to the killer and not very much to the victim. Mm. So I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about. And it's one of those things where fortunately, I don't know what it's like to be a family member Mm -hmm. of someone who's been murdered. Murdered. So I don't know. It's just one of those things in the context of like stories and Mm -hmm. who who is the storyteller. And And who's the story for? I think that's what's really important too. But at the end of the day, I think it's, it really comes down to, yeah, being respectful mm. and trying to get it right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think she gets it right with this book. Yeah. I'm going to leave you with a couple of quotes that I really liked. Yeah, go for it. <clears throat> okay. Uh, Truth breaks the chains of silence. Puri puts a trembling hand to her chest. Her voice drops to a whisper. It sets all of us free. And this is what she's saying to Daniel at the end when he comes to take his younger sister to the orphanage where they found her and adopted her from. And Puri still is there as now as like one of the head nuns. And, and she, she knows that he knows that they all know the story of her sister's origin. Uh And, and that's when she says he, he asks her like, should we tell her basically in a very like convoluted way in a vague way. And she says that she says truth breaks the chains of silence and she puts a trembling hand to her chest and her voice drops to a whisper. It sets us all free. Mm. And then so do they tell her? No, you don't know. Oh, it doesn't carry the disease of fear. It's easy to be fearless when you have nothing to lose. That's says true. Julia. Um, and that's between Julia and Anna and they're having that conversation, the sisters. So Thousands of babies were stolen from their parents during the Franco dictatorship in Spain, but the story was suppressed for decades. Now the first stolen baby case has gone to court. The trial is expected to last months as Lucia 
Benavides reports from Spain. It's a dark part of Spanish history that is finally getting more recognition. Between 1939 and the late 1980s, it is alleged that over 300,000 babies were stolen from their birth mothers and sold into adoption. That's crazy. And that's all from her author's note. Jeez. There's also some really great like side characters. I would consider them side characters. There's this great story of a boy who wants to be a matador and he works at the graveyard Mm -hmm. and his uh, really good friend and basically brother there. They basically rub together. And so this boy, they find out some, some appalling facts and he doesn't quite know what to do. So he goes to confession and he's trying to help his friend become this matador. And he, yeah, there's just a lot happening. And so he goes to confession. He goes, and so I confess dear Padre that I feel confused. Fuga is gone. Fuga was his friend taken by a bullet. I should feel guilty and full of fear, but somehow I feel more connected to my friend and more proud of him than ever. Fuga never compromised. He never apologized for who or what he was. His difficult past was not a burden to him, but an inspiration. And some friendships are born of commonality, others of proximity. Some friendships, often the unlikely ones, are born of survival. And and so that, that's what he is basically saying to like the priest, like, I can't. I, I can't be I'm more mad at the other people involved in this and the fact that it's always a low man on the totem pole that gets has to bury the weight of the sins of others like mm-hmm. and that's not fair mm-hmm. which I found to be incredibly true I mean, that's true and he says we've only died if you forget us mm. which is you know true I think yeah so there you go how many stars are we giving it oh five I really yeah, liked it sounds like a good one no ass claps or some ass claps? Uh, maybe one. There's one. a scene. It oh. fades to black. So oh. you get a little smoochy smoochy and then it fades. Oh. Uh, and how many heart thumbs? Oh my gosh, like a million. All of the heart thumbs. <laughs> All of the heart there thumbs. There were palpitations. <laughs> yeah, you could say. I mean, there was a time where I was cooking and I forgot I had chicken in the oven. Because <laughs> I was so intently listening that I forgot to go get it. And that was when you were in therapy the other day. And I was like, oh, no, oh, the no. chicken might be dry. I'm sorry. That's okay. It was delicious. So I love it. All right. Well, it's been great, guys. Have a great week. Bye. Follow us on social media. We'll bye. have all the links. Y'all. 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 Bye. What do you mean? Go ahead. Are you going to hit the thing? Hit what thing? The little din din it. Oh. Bennett, 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 Banana, Nana, 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 Banana, Nana, Nana, You know that one. Oh, sure. Hold on. Let me give it three seconds of silence. Oh, shit. What happened? Oh, my volume. Okay. Hold on. <laughs>